you, Rachel and Stephanie. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. This morning we'll be finishing up our series in Ecclesiastes. My wife and I were referencing uh, this week how we've seen uh, each other grow. By the way, if you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to Children's Church. I know you guys are getting antsy, starting to see knees jumping. Through each study that we've been through, if you've been here for a while, you know that we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, we've gone through the letter to the Galatians, Jonah, Ruth, and I'm sure I'm missing some. We just were thinking about each book that we've studied through and how we were different at the end of the study than we were at the beginning of the study and how God's word changes us. And I trust that as we close the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, hopefully it's not the end of Ecclesiastes in your life, that you can reference it once again, that you can go back and hopefully you've taken notes as God's worked in your heart and you have seen a picture of what this world is, but you've seen a picture of who God is that, that dominates our thinking, that dominates our life, that as we, as we are God-focused, this world and what it truly is actually comes into focus for us. And so we'll close this morning with a message focused on suffering. Three topical message, we've done work and rest, God's gift and God's mandate of work, God's gift and mandate of rest. And this morning, I'd like to show you God's gift and mandate of suffering. Not mandate in the sense that he is requiring you to suffer, but in the sense that you have no choice but to suffer. That this world is full of suffering that will impact your life. And in seeing that, we can also see it as a gift from God. Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We'll read verses 1 down through verse 14, and then we'll pray. A good name is better than precious ointment, the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. The living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools in the house of mirth or partying. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom perseveres, I'm sorry, preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. 
God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Lord, would you give wisdom? Would you open up our eyes for understanding? If there's one here who's not saved, would you breathe life into their soul? Would you give them a heart of flesh that they may place their faith and trust in you alone? Would you be with the message today that would be an encouragement to our hearts? In your name we pray. Amen. Thought it would be adequate for me before I lead you through a brief study on the attributes of God beginning next Sunday morning that we would pause and we would reflect on this topic that Ecclesiastes brings to the forefront of our mind. Over the past couple of years, we have been through many layers of suffering together as a congregation. We've sat and cried together as life turned out differently than we've thought or hoped. I've sat with many of you as your family members, my dear friends, have passed on into eternity. We've sat together to hear the doctor give a diagnosis that is less than favorable, to hear families falling apart, suffering because of sin done to you. We've sat and cried as we have prayed and sought God's will on suffering because of sin in your own life. And during these difficult times, there's been a question that's lingered at the back of my mind, and it's a question that many of you have voiced to me during these times. It's a question that maybe is on your heart this morning, and it's the question, why? Why? Pastor, why is this happening? Why would God allow this into my life? Why would the consequences of my sin be so devastating? Why would this person just walk away? Why would God take my loved one to heaven? Ecclesiastes 7 makes several value statements in regards to suffering. Before we get to the answer of why, I think we need to look at what Solomon shares with us in wisdom and suffering and see, first of all, that in order to understand why, we have to recognize that suffering holds value in our life in some way. Chapter 7 reveals this to us in verse 2 by saying that suffering gives us perspective. Perspective on life. And in verses 3 and 4, suffering brings wisdom into our life. In verse 5, a unique form of suffering. Suffering even brings growth into our life when it comes at the rebuke of those who love us, doesn't it? And sometimes the rebuke of those who don't love us. I read a statement today from a very wise person in leadership who was counseling a younger man in leadership, and the the younger man was complaining because of all of the negative feedback that was coming his way, and the wise pastor said, well, the first thing you need to ask is, are they right? Because if they are, maybe it's not just someone who doesn't like you. Maybe it can actually be constructive feedback. And so in those moments of suffering at the hands of others, and 
When somebody's being negative towards you, perhaps it can actually result in growth. Maybe they have a point. It can result in patience and endurance in verses 8 and 9. There are so many different types of suffering and so many levels of suffering that can be brought into our lives. It, it develops this patience and endurance when you say, oh, I, I've been through this before. The first time the stomach bug goes through your house and the first time your child gets a stomach bug, they wonder, am I ever going to stop seeing my food again, Right? Is there going to be an end to this suffering? And as a parent, one of the ways that you comfort is to say, it'll, it'll be gone soon. Soon is relative. Right. But it'll end soon. Patience and endurance. I've been through this before. I've, I know that there's an end to this trial. In this passage in verses 13 and 14, it also reveals to us two truths that we must embrace to understand the suffering from a biblical perspective. Contrary to popular opinion, verse 13 does not describe Bruce Johnson's golf game. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what has been made crooked? It's talking about the curse. It's talking about the curse. That the the ground has been cursed as a result of sin. And no one can fix the fact that suffering is a part of life. Verse 13, suffering is a, world, uh, is, is a part of this world because of the curse. And we look around us and we have a sense that it's not supposed to be like this. And you're right, it wasn't supposed to be like this. God created everything perfect and then because of sin... The ground and the world and your body and everything around you is tainted by sin. And since that day, creation has been groaning under the curse, waiting for the day when Jesus will return to make all things right. Not only will, will you get a new glorified body without pain and suffering and the curse of sin on it, friend, the world around us will be burned and recreated and, and renewed without the suffering of sin, without the consequences of sin all around us. Romans 8 says that creation groans until that day. Verse 14 reveals to us a, a groundbreaking truth that anchors you in these moments of suffering. That God is sovereign and in control even in the times of suffering, you could say especially in the times of suffering because those days of suffering are ordained by God in your life. Look at verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. You say, that's beyond my understanding. Well, so it is with Solomon, that last phrase. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. That's, that's beyond me to understand this. But to recognize this truth is where you drop your anchor. Wrong theology, wrong thinking, is that everything good in my life is the result of God and everything quote-unquote bad in my life is the result of the devil. Get a flat tire on the day to work. Satan's really fighting me today. Maybe. 
but it's under God's sovereignty as well. So it's not as though it caught God off guard. Some people see suffering like God looks down and he goes, oh no, my, my child is in trouble. But you know what I can do? I can make it good. Say, no, no, God created both days in your life. God rules over both. Yes, Satan is often called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4 or the ruler of the world in John chapter 12, John chapter 14, John chapter 16. He's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2. But make no mistake, Satan has no power in this world except as is allowed by God. And so God is not the author of evil. However, God does allow suffering into your life And that suffering is under his total and complete sovereignty and control. There is no portion of your life, there is no aspect of your life in which you can say, God is not in this. God is in total control. Psalm 115.3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and earth. Daniel chapter 4 verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants on the earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one holds the right to do that. Perhaps your mind is already drawn to the character of Job in Scripture who is on record as suffering immensely. But in the midst of his suffering, as he questions God and God reveals his character, Job says why the entire book of Job makes sense when you understand that Job is simply asking for a court date with God. That's all he's asking for. Put me in court with God. I'll stand on trial You'll see I'm innocent. And then he realizes God's holiness and he begs for an advocate to stand between him and God in court. He doesn't get an advocate. He actually gets God himself in a whirlwind and God's answer to Job's suffering is I'm God and you're not. So back off. And in Job 42.2 you see a godly man who is anchored in, in God's character and his faith is revealed when he makes this statement I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted God I know you can do all things I know you can I know you could stop it I know you could bless me I know you could curse me I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted and, 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 and Job is really anchoring his his faith in two aspects of God's character here. You have God's sovereignty and God's love. That you can do all things and yet you have a purpose. It's like God, a sovereign God who's not loving is a terror. Isn't he? And a loving God who's not in control, is useless. And yet Job unfolds this picture of of a God who's in total control 
who has a purpose. He has a purpose. This means that God uses suffering in the lives of his children for a good purpose. And if you have suffering in your life this morning, as so many of us do, friends, the the word that needs to come to the front of your heart and your mind this morning is purpose. And it answers the question in a broad sense of why. Often when people ask the question why, they want something very specific. Well, God did this in your life so that this could happen and this could happen and this could happen and everything's going to be okay. It's usually the, the context in when, which that question is asked. And we won't know till we get to heaven the specific, intimate reasons in your story of why this happened. But what I'd like to show you this morning, based on the wisdom of Solomon and the writings of Peter and Paul, is that God does have an overarching purpose for your suffering this morning. Purpose is so important. Suffering without purpose leads you into depression, doesn't it? There has to be a reason why this is happening. Thomas Carlyle said, a man without a purpose is like a ship without a rudder. And maybe this morning you've come into this building and and you feel as if you've been drifting on the ocean of life with no purpose. And you feel like your ship is, is drifting and it is getting hammered by storm after storm after storm. And the swells are 20 feet high as you go up and down and up and down and you say, my life is going nowhere. There is no purpose. And the comfort that I'd like to show you through Scripture this morning is that you're not suffering in vain. That you are not floating as a ship without a rudder you may not be able to see or know until eternity your specific, intimate details of the purpose of why you are suffering in your story, but you can anchor in God's purpose because make no mistake, your loving Heavenly Father is working through your suffering and everything is happening in your life for your good. Now we need to define what good is, don't we? But it's happening for your good. My younger brother, Andrew, struggled uh, with some different health issues when he was young, and the doctors made the decision to have his tonsils and adenoids out, taken out. And um, my brother, Andrew, uh, as a child, was a very uh, carefree, happy-go-lucky kid, happy-go-lucky, big smiles, always laughing. And I remember um, my mom telling us that when she took Andrew into the doctor's office as a, as a very young boy, he got the gown on and he's sitting in the doctor's office with a big smile as they're reading the books and he goes back and in, the, in the, the hospital bed or whatever it was there with a big smile on his face. We actually have a picture of him just before the surgery with a big smile on his face. And um, as my, my parents tell the story, my mom says that after the surgery and after he was woken up from anesthesia, 
she walked into the room and she said, I'll never forget the way he looked at me. Because he looked at me and in his eyes there was like this betrayal. Like, why did you do this? She said he looked at her with this, these eyes of betrayal and then turned over and looked at the wall. And as a parent, what do you do? I mean, you say, you have, you have to trust me. You have to trust me that although this was so painful, it's actually better. It's actually good. And a child can't understand that, but friends, how many times have we looked at God that way? That you look up in pain and suffering and you look to God and you say, God, you've betrayed me. I gave you everything. And yet it hurts so bad. And I didn't even see it coming. The rudder to our ship is going to be anchored really and, and fastened to the, to the ship of our life by, by two main passages. There are so many passages on suffering. I wish, I mean, there's so many good books on suffering. So many passages that reveal to us that suffering is a, is, a, is a real normal part of life and it was a real part of Christ's life. In fact, there are very few, if, if any, I think in my reading I've only found one revelation in Scripture of Jesus' emotions when it comes to joy and happiness and laughing. Obviously we know who did. He was, he was a man. But there are so many references to his anguish and his, his, his turmoil and his soul and, and physical suffering. So we're going to anchor into two passages this morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn there one at a time. If you don't have your Bible, just listen. I'm going to read them for you. Our first passage is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. So let's turn there together. The rudder of our, the ship of our life, of, of this purpose that God provides is really fastened by these two anchors. And these two anchors are 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12. They're two, not the only two passages on suffering. They're probably not even, you, you, you could probably find better passages that speak to your heart on suffering, I guess. But as I was meditating on passages this week, these were the two that God really impressed on my heart. And so I'd like to share with you in the time that we have left in these two passages, five purposes for which God and his sovereignty will use suffering in your life. Five purposes. They're not the only purposes. They're not going to answer the granular question of why for your life. I don't know why, but, but in an overarching sense, friend, I'd like to show you five purposes for which God will use suffering in your life. Let's begin reading in verse 3 of 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who is by God's power, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
And in this, in this moment, in this concept that God is preserving you for this moment in heaven, you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I'd like to show you two purposes here in 1 Peter and then three in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The first purpose that I'd like to show you here that that Peter gives us as he pastors our heart through this concept is that suffering serves the purpose of lifting your eyes to heaven. Of lifting your eyes to heaven. In this, you rejoice. I don't have anything to be happy about. Well, if you're a believer, you do. In this, you rejoice. Where nothing in my life is going right. Well, there's one thing. If the rest of your life is falling apart and literally nothing is going right and nothing is going well, there is one thing that you can lift up your eyes and you can see. And that's your salvation as it's being preserved in heaven. That, that suffering serves a purpose of letting go of the things of this earth, of taking your eyes off of this earth and looking to heaven. Where Jesus is saying, just look at me. Just look at me. Don't, don't look at things around you, just look at me. If there was no suffering in this world, if the world was pain-free and filled with glorious experience after glorious experience that was totally satisfying in every way, we would be so consumed with living here on this earth that our eyes would be driven downward. And our focus would be driven downward. And then rather, when this world is filled with pain and suffering, we have to let go of this world, then our eyes have nowhere to go but up. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, right? Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What is it that's so wonderful in heaven that we look to? Well, new life. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's God himself waiting who's granted us according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Does your life stink here on this earth? You got a new one waiting for you, right? And how often do we look and say, man, if this is as good as it gets, we're all in big trouble. My life is hard. Friends, you have been born again. You've been given new life. Secondly, you've been given living hope. That means you have hope of real substance. That every time you're let down in this life, every time something in your life does not live up to your expectations, you should be reminded that heaven will not be like that. 
that everything in heaven is beyond every expectation you could ever have. That there's nothing in heaven that you're going to go, I thought it was going to be better. There's no aspect of heaven in which you will be disappointed. How do I know this is true? Because Jesus proved it to be true by securing it with his resurrection from the dead. We have an eternal inheritance. Verse 4. Inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. When we moved to the Midwest, I got a very important piece of advice. Don't buy a nice car because it's going to rust out anyway. It's like, listen, you can, you can buy a really pretty car and it'll rust. Or you can buy an ugly car and it'll rust, you know? It's like, listen, there are certain things in life, death taxes and rust in Indiana, right? That's just the way that it works. But it's not like that in heaven. There is no fading. There is no perishing. There is no death. There is no end. Drive the nicest car in heaven that you want. The tires will never wear out. Maybe the mileage meter never even rolls over, right? Or I guess now they're all digital. It, n- none of that happens in heaven. It's, it's preserved by God in his unchanging character. Thirdly, you have guaranteed passage. Like when you look towards heaven, you say, I, not I hope that's mine, but that's mine. Look, look, at, look at verse 7. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That your salvation is waiting, and then look back at verse 5, who by God's power you are being guarded through faith for salvation. That the faith that you possess as a believer actually finds its source in God, and that's why you can't lose it. That's why, that's why it's, it's supremely beyond any other generated trust you can have. That there is a supernatural faith that God is protecting you, and you have guaranteed passage. Though the world stands against you, the worst they can do is kill you and send you there quicker. It's like, listen, that there is something that is waiting for me that I already possess. It's an already not yet. It's already mine, and I'm waiting to get it, but it's so secure that God is guarding me. And every time I lift my eyes there, I say, this life is full of suffering, but that life is not, and it's already mine. That my eyes are cast to heaven, and I'm guarded by God. That he's built a fence around me that guarantees my passage to heaven, to his side, to glorification. That those whom he calls, he justifies. And those whom he justifies, he glorifies. The harder life gets, 
the more you long for that moment. Those of our seasoned saints in our congregation want heaven so much more than our teenagers and college students and young adults. Why? Because they've suffered more. Because they know how dark the world can be. Because they've experienced pain and continue to experience pain every day and long for that day. Trials help us direct our eyes towards heaven. Secondly, trials serve a purpose to reveal the genuineness of our faith. Look at verse 6. In this heaven, this, this preservation of what God has for you, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, since it's necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that, here's the, here's the specific purpose of verses 7 and 8, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. Trials serve to reveal whether your faith is genuine. Tom Schreiner put it this way in his commentary on 1 Peter. Sufferings function as the crucible for faith. They test the genuineness of faith, revealing whether or not faith is authentic. The first thing I want you to see is that this testing is temporary. It says for a little while. Again, temporary is relative. Sometimes trials seem like they'll never end when you're in the midst of suffering. It seems like it's always been this way and it's always going to be this way. But friend, your suffering will end whether in this life or the next. Your suffering has an end date. Secondly, it's purifying. This testing is is more precious than gold. That, that, That what happens within this testing is that your faith is, is put into the, uh, the crucible, as Tom Schreiner says, of trials, and then inside of that it gets heated and purified so that the only thing that's left is genuine faith. You, you are forced to release everything else that you might be tempted to rely on. Financial security, family, whatever it is that you are currently holding on, suffering has a way of forcing you to release your grip on those things. So that the only thing that remains is genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Helen Keller, many of you know her story, said the following, Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved. Meaning that it's in this suffering That as you let go of the things of this world, your character is sharpened to be more like Jesus. Because the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man, Jesus, as he traveled on this earth, let go of uh, of his earthly possessions and grasped only to his Father. And so as we learn to do the same through suffering, we are purifying our character to, to look more like Christ. But lastly, this testing is revealing, and I want you to, to listen carefully, friend, that trials will reveal your faith. The outcome of suffering is the revelation of genuine or false faith. Listen carefully. 
Faith does not save you. Jesus saves you. Jesus rescues you from your sin. Jesus forgives you. People have faith in all sorts of things to try to get them to God, but Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way. You can have faith in your works and you're going to fall short. You can have faith in your giving, you're going to fall short. You have faith in your church membership, you're going to fall short. Faith does not save you. Jesus saves you. And the only access to Jesus is to cross the bridge of faith to get to your object of faith. And so you cross the bridge of faith to get to Jesus. And what trials do is they purify what you are really trusting in. Because if you're trusting in your financial security and your suffering takes that out and you walk away, then the Jesus that you accepted is the Jesus who will give you financial prosperity. And when that's gone, you say, well, I'm walking away from Jesus. If the Jesus that you accepted is supposed to be a Jesus that gives you physical comfort and physical health, and your health starts to go away, then you walk away from that Jesus because that Jesus doesn't exist. Because listen carefully, listen very carefully. It's not about accepting Jesus. It's about accepting the right Jesus. Your Jesus has to be the Jesus of the Bible. The God that, that is, is your king must be the God of Scripture. And, and what trials do is trials have a way of revealing what the object of your faith truly is. And so you have the parable of the soils given in Mark chapter 4. Where the seed is, is sown and on three types of soil, only one is genuine because one, when, when suffering, the weeds of suffering come up, it chokes out that faith because the faith that that person had was in a God who never lets his children suffer. And so when that God is revealed to be false, the person walks away and says, I tried God, but it didn't work. And we would say, you didn't try the right God. And then the other one, the trials of the cares of this world grow up and choke out faith because in that moment the God that the person was trusting in was the God who gave them everything and if I can't have that and I can't have that and I can't have that I'm not going to be prosperous and all of these things then I walk away from God and friend it's because you tried the wrong God and when you come to the Jesus of the Bible and you turn yourself over to him and you turn your heart over to him. When trials come, it reveals that you are trusting in the right Jesus. And many of you know people who have walked away from the faith as a result of trials. And if you want to read about their story, turn to Mark 4 and you see it explained by Christ. That friend, trials have a way of revealing who's in and who's out. Because at the end of the day, you only have the genuine God of the Bible. I remember my father-in-law after being diagnosed with a brain tumor, and I've used the conversation that I've had with him as several illustrations, but we sat on his back porch in, in Florida, and I asked him how he was doing, and he looked at me after getting the, the, the diagnosis of a brain tumor that would take his life. Inoperable. He said, son, at this point, you're either in or you're out, and I'm all in. Because that suffering revealed his, his, the beauty of the faith that he had had for so long that in that moment, 
He said, God isn't a God who has to heal me on this earth in order to be my God. He's the God of the Bible. He's the God that uses suffering to purify and reveal genuine faith. The next three I'll go through a little bit more briefly. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You want to go back in your Bibles just a little bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Your suffering has a purpose. It's the rudder that drives the ship of your life. And although you may feel as though you are drifting purposefully, purposelessly in the sea of life, aimlessly, it's recognizing God's purposes in your life that direct you in your life. The first is that it directs your eyes to heaven. The second is that it reveals the genuineness of your faith. We'll find the third revealed to us in Paul's statement beginning in verse 7. Paul reveals everything that's happened to him and the, the blessings that he's had in ministry. Look at verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that's from God, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He gives it to you twice. Because trials have a way of bringing humility into our lives. Suffering has a way of bringing us to our knees and recognizing the creature-creator distinction. That there is a God and you are not him. And that in your life, friend, you need to align yourself under God's purposes. Suffering has a way of bringing us to the point of not being able to do what we used to do. Perhaps as the sharpness of your mind begins to fade later in life, you begin to think, I didn't used to have to to think hard in order to search for this word. I cannot remember that person's name for the death of me or for the life of me. We use both. Neither, they don't really know what it means, but it's just a saying, right? The things don't come as easy. And if you're in high school or college, you'll find soon enough that the sports that you play now, you'll table for a while and you'll come back and it just won't be the same. I used to be able to very easily grab the rim on a basketball goal. I hadn't tried it in about eight or nine years, which was a mistake. And I was preaching at a youth group outing um, a year and a half ago. And there was a basketball hoop there. And uh, I got a ball, went up for a layup, jumped as high as I could. And I came way short. And when I landed, something happened. <laughs> it was like, I didn't, I didn't used to feel it. You know what it is? It's my shoes. I didn't wear the right basketball shoes, right? Because those make you jump higher and run faster. It just, it, you can't do the things you used to do. Suffering has a way of humbling us, 
of saying, maybe I'm not as strong as I think I am. I didn't think I would struggle like this. I thought I had life all figured out, and then this happened. And I was launched into the throes of worry, anxiety, fear, anger. It keeps you from being conceited. Now that, again, this doesn't mean that every time you suffer, it's because you have a conceited personality that God is trying to break. But in every suffering event, it brings us to our knees in humility to realize that we need God. Number four, verses eight and nine show us that suffering makes us a vessel ready to receive the grace of God. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. You ever been there? Three times I pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul pleads, God, take this thorn in the flesh away. What was it? I don't know. Some would say his eyesight. Some would say his, his health in general. I, we, we don't know. If God wanted us to know exactly what it is, he would have told us, but he didn't. It, was a thorn. it wasn't literally a thorn in his flesh. He's using that to say there was a, an agent of suffering that had been brought into my life under God's control, shown that God is not the author of evil, it is a messenger of Satan to buffet me, and yet God says everything's okay because it's under my control. My grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness, and in those moments of begging God to take it away and take it away, Paul is finally taken to a point where he's ready to receive that truth. God, your grace is enough. All I have is Christ. All I need is God's grace poured out of my life. And until this moment, I really didn't understand that truth. And it makes you a vessel ready to receive the grace of God. How many times have you heard this was the most difficult trial I've ever been through in my life, but in the middle of it, God was closer than I could have ever imagined. Heard the testimony of, of a person who had gone through chemo treatments from cancer, and he said, There were times in the treatments in which I was curled up in the fetal position on the floor of my bathroom in pain, and I couldn't move. But what was amazing is that God was right there with me. He said, I don't miss the pain, but I miss those moments of close fellowship with God because he was all that I had. And friend, I've never been through something that that hard. So I can't share with you that that's true, but I can share with you the testimony of those in our congregation who are nodding because they've been through times like that. In those moments, I was a vessel ready to receive that grace because I was in the moment of suffering and the communion with God was so sweet. God uses your suffering to to bring fellowship like never before. 
Lastly, to find God as your only strength. To find God as your only strength. Verse 9, therefore I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content in my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. He's not saying that I, I boast about my sin. He's not saying that I open the skeletons of my closet to tell everybody in the, in the, in the false concept of authenticity how bad I am and how bad my life is. What he's saying is that in those moments of weakness, I find genuine strength. Because it's in those moments that I have God's strength filling up a cup that's been emptied by suffering. And then I'm truly strong. Friend, I don't know all the reasons why you're suffering. But I can comfort you this morning that God is using the suffering in your life to authenticate your faith and make you more like Christ. This is the ultimate good that I referenced at the beginning of the message. You could really say, as Paul does in Romans chapter 8, that your suffering in the most general sense is for your good. But we have to define what that good is, and Paul does that for us. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And a lot of people stop there. And they say, you know what that means? That means that something good's going to come out of this. Like I lost my job, but I'm going to get a job that pays more. Or, you know, this happened and something's going to be actually better in my life as a result of it. But that's not what Paul is saying because we have to continue reading in order to get his heart because his thought continues in verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And the good is given in the next phrase to be conformed to the image of his son. What is the good that God is working in your life, friend? It's not only good, it's best. What is that best? That you would look like Jesus. It's better than anything else on this earth. It's better than anything this world can provide for you. It's better than the best, best friend. It's better than the full bank account. It's better than the ease of retirement. It's better than the children that you've been praying for but God hasn't given you. It's better than the suffering that, that, that what was taken away or what was hurt because of the suffering in your life. It's that you would look like Jesus. And that through that suffering, that, that all the, the things in your life that need to be chipped away are chipped away, that you can be conformed to the image of his son. And friends, you have the confidence that God will do that. Why? Because those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. God will do it. He 
He's faithful who's promised that he will do it. That God is working good in your life. And is that easy? No. But at the end of the day, as a child of God, you look and you say, this was the hardest thing I've ever been through. But in the end, I can look back and I can say, but it was good. Because at the end of the day, my eyes were lifted to heaven. My fellowship with God was greater than it was before. I let go of the things of this earth. I treasured God as my only strength. I was a vessel ready to receive his grace. And we could go on and on and on. That it's good that your faith is revealed to be genuine. And it's good that your rescue from the suffering is guaranteed. That God has a purpose. He has a reason. And that reason anchors us in our life to cast ourselves on the arms of a loving shepherd who's also in full control. To say, I can, I can trust you. And if I knew what you knew, I would understand that. And if I knew what you knew, I would be okay, but I don't. So I have to let truth pierce through the emotions pierce through the fear and cast my ar- myself into the arms of a God who loves me and is in full control and say, God, you are working good through your purposes in my suffering. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have not left us without purpose. We are so thankful that in the midst of this broken world, we find grace and hope and joy. That even though suffering is a guaranteed part of a sinful world, a sovereign, loving God is in full control the entire time. And that you work it for our good. And so many times we don't understand that because we approach life from an from immature perspective as your child, and yet we have to trust our Father. For the hearts in the room this morning that are overwhelmed with grief, suffering, and hardship, may the truth of a loving, sovereign creator pierce through their emotions so that they can find comfort that you are at work. Confidence that you will bring it to pass. And joy in looking forward to heaven. Friend, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you reflect and respond to the truth that you've heard this morning from the pages of Scripture? On a giant topic like we've tried to cover this morning there are so many questions that may be going unanswered in your mind but would you reflect on the truth of scripture rest in a loving sovereign God would you choose to trust would you see the suffering being worked out for your good and for God's glory 
And would you respond in your heart to your creator in these moments?